On today's episode of Way Down in the Hole, we take a deep dive into episode eight, which is titled Corner Boys. Uh, Mayor-to-be Thomas J. Carchetti is finding out his new position comes with a whole lot of old problems, and Herc is discovering he is no match for Marlo. Coming up next on Way Down in the Hole. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Now, who are you? Players. Kingpins? Nah. That comes later. Right now, we're just corner boys. So how long until your kingpins? I'm thinking two, three years. Two, three years. Let me ask, and I want everybody to write this down. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I believe you got my camera. Oh, what? License registration. Video camera got to come back. Yeah, well, I see what I can find out about it. But you know cameras. Kind of like pigeons in a stall. Walk up. Finish them all. With a headshot. Nigga, how the fuck should I know? Yo, who the fuck is you talking? All right, so we have arrived at episode eight, Corner Boys here, season four. You know, it's funny because as the season um, progresses, I notice this in every wire season, as we get toward the finish line of the season, these storylines kind of narrow. So where you're only per episode, kind of dealing with maybe two or three storylines. And it starts to materialize. They throw a whole bunch of shit at you at the beginning. Shit sorts itself out. And then you get to the point where right about now, it's really narrowing on who the focus should be, where most of the drama is coming from, and and so on and so forth. So we're just like, to me, right at that point where things are really narrowed down into what the focus of season four is. Mm. Yeah, it's very true. They do that. It seems like the stories almost do that organically in a way. Like they're sitting around in the writer's room and the stories that are picking up steam, pick up steam, and the ones that become BC level plots and kind of bubble, bubble under, they kind of take hold as far as that's concerned as well. But, you know, we're getting to a point here in season four where the individual lives of the kids are starting to kind of drive the narrative. Like we know what's going on with Duquan. But what's going on with Duquan is sort of kind of starting to take a backseat a little bit to what's going on with Randy and what's going on uh, in this instance with Michael. And in this particular episode, what's happening with Michael and Michael's home life and what Michael has gone through and really survived become super, super, super important to the overall uh, sort of rhythm uh, of the show. Yeah, we're looking at the point where he becomes kind of the focal point, honestly. And and this is a storyline that starts now and doesn't 
really end until the end of the the wire. Sure. Total. So like now we're looking at the foundation of how Michael's story is built. His origin story is being completely fleshed out. Um, So other than than those things, what were some of the other major takeaways that you had from Corner Boys? Uh, It had a lot to do with realities. What people thought was going on and what's actually real, what's actually happened. Carcetti learns the reality of his situation. He is the mayor, but he has not cleared out all of the beef. The um, the president, interesting. She's the president of what? The, <laughs> of council, the city council. Of the city council yeah. president. Okay, yeah, because right. back in Baton Rouge, we didn't even get, look, not even three minutes in. And we I are, love it. Not even, Give us what, some Baton Rouge goodness. <laughs> we had a mayor back in Baton Rouge. His name was Tom Ed McHugh. And this was back in the day. He was the mayor and the president. Oh, that's I, remember, I, don't, I don't remember what he was the president of, but he was Mayor President Tom Ed McHugh. Now we got, uh, we got, uh, we've had different mail. We have Broom is in there now. We've had Kip Holden, but I never knew what the president thing was. But she's the city, she's the city council president. Okay, so that's a big deal. Uh, so they yes, go back and Norris. Norris. So they go back and forth, and Carcetti is he's dealing with the reality that he is the leader. But he is still in the middle of a lot of situations that he doesn't have very much control over. Though There were deals that were made before he got there that he is now kind of being thumped for. He <laughs> goes to talk to the police officers and to ride around with them and to get a sense of what's going on uh, in the police department because he wants to be tough on crime. And that's when he starts to realize that all of the things that he wants to do with the police force, he might not be able to do because things might be too far gone. Yeah, oddly enough, um, as I was watching this episode, um, I couldn't help but think about my brief stint on Sports Center. <laughs> Ooh, I know. never talked about right. this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was like, I couldn't help but think about my brief stint there. And that's because I- I've said this before whenever people ask me what went wrong and and why did I eventually ask to be off what is the legacy brand in sports television, Sports Center. And what I tell them is that you, you know, when we started Sports Center, me and my former co-host Michael Smith. Shout out. We shout out, yes. Uh he's got a new show that's on Peacock, Peacock. right now. Do your him, thing, brother. Yep. Yep. Him and Michael Holly wish him all the best. Um, but nobody ever starts something like that with the intention of failing. And you go into that thinking that you're about to disrupt the game, you're about to change the system, you're about to be so different and almost like you're you're making this pronouncement, like you're about to do TV backwards. You're about to do some new shit ain't nobody seen before, right? Um, and that's not to say that Sports Center is as failed of an institution as some of the institutions that we're looking at here in The Wire. Um, but it is an institution nevertheless, and it certainly has some blind spots. And we went in there with the best intention only once we were in it to realize that there were just some shit we, was up, we were up against that was never going to change. And yeah. certainly, I'll put it like this, it, would, it wasn't going to be changed by us. And so I thought about that looking at Carcetti, who I think he had kind of convinced himself, uh, you know, partly he was running for ego. That was a big part of it. It was a promotion, you know, all the prestige that comes with being a mayor of a major American city. But I think he really thought that he was going to have a new idea somebody had thought of, do things differently in a way nobody had ever done. You always go in with that only to realize once he's getting a real lay of the land and seeing what the reality is of the problems he's trying to solve, then he gets it that, oh, I get it. Yes, Clarence Royce was not a good politician. I mean, he was a good politician, but not necessarily good at governing. But the problems he was dealing with, he was just a product of those problems. That was it. You know, so Carcetti is coming in here with this vim and vigor 
only to see that there's a blueprint that's already established that he's going to have to follow if he plans to survive. Right. And it's not the blueprint that he had in mind. He actually came in there with the weird idea he could make a difference only to realize he's not going to be able to accomplish that probably at all. Like this is going to be, he's going to follow, if he's not careful, going down the same path that Royce did um, mostly because he's being drugged under tow into something that's so much bigger than him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a tough thing to kind of wake up to, right? You were to get someplace and then you're looking around in the place that you're at and you realize that before you change things, you have to work to fit in first. There are things, there's a structure there and you have to work to kind of fit into what's going on. And Carcetti didn't even realize that. He doesn't realize that he's going to have to, there are going to be constraints that he's going to have to learn how to work within. No, he was there. He was the breaker of chains. And that's what he was coming in there to do. But, you know, uh, it was an awakening for him. And I think the at homicide, when he's talking at homicide to everyone, and then, uh, but also th- the same thing with realities also kind of happens with Bunny in school. I think Bunny knew that the kids were a little bit, obviously he knew that they were behind and that they were failing, but I don't think Bunny knew what they didn't know. And so sometimes it's very, it's easy to turn somebody on to something new. It's very difficult to learn what somebody doesn't know. Because there's a shock factor to that. Like if you're looking at and you're you're expecting something from someone because you're expecting to be able to build on a foundation and then you realize there's no foundation, they don't know shit. Now you're frazzled. And that's kind of when you got to turn up. Uh, And Mike, you know, Mike was relatively having a decent time, right? He had his life the way he thought that it was supposed to go or the way that it was, he had figured it out, should I say. You know, he, he'd take care of his uh, little brother. There was still stuff he had to deal with with his mom. We see that in this episode. But the homecoming of Bug's dad reminds Michael of the realities and the things that he's survived, the things that he's been through, and of the ever-present danger that lurks around him at all times. You know, he couldn't get away from it the safe haven of school. Couldn't get away from it the safe haven of the gym. This is your life. And I think seeing him react to that and kind of deal with that and played so brilliantly by Tristan Wilds, you know, when Prez can see it on Michael, that he's carrying something. I think all of these characters dealing with what their actual realities are is kind of what this episode was for me. Yeah, uh, I agree that there's certainly a lot to unpack with everybody's, you know, apparent reality that they can't escape despite the fact that they're trying to um, really impact the system. And that's just a constant theme of The Wire is that people up against inertia that they eventually kind of concede to, if you will. All right, now let's get into the recap of what happened here, what happens here in episode eight, Corner Boys. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, a lot of the things that tripped up Royce, you see how they will trip up Carcetti. You know, they're kind of circling around him. He does the ride along with the police and he spends some time in homicide and he sees in the police department he sees a police department trying to reduce crime and violence in the most non-productive way possible. Yeah, um, the stupid and as way. A, just a stupid way, like a stupid, just it is born of any real tactics that they are, or at least the 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 analogy I can come up with that I compare to based on what we see in, in episode eight. It's when we all, uh, in going to the airport, going through security, we all had to take our shoes off, right? right for a time, right? So uh, because somebody tried to light their shoes uh, uh, on fire on a plane um, and, you know, luckily some passengers beat him down and stopped him. 
But after that, we had to all take our shoes off. Then they invent a new moneymaker called PreCheck, right? Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, you know, we don't have to do that with that. Um, And, you know, you don't have to take out your laptop anymore. And there's other little concessions that you could just skip just for paying a certain fee. And the whole point of taking our shoes off was not because it actually may have stopped anything. It's because it made us appear safe. Right. It made us appear like we were doing something. So doing these, so busting a dude on a bike on his way to work <laughs> um, is just making people appear safe when really it's not getting to the root of the problem at all. And after so this is what entrapping is. him. Right, after entrapping him, they ask him to go buy drugs. He's not the, he's not the dealer. He is not the, you know, supplier of anything. He's not a quarter boy. He's nothing. He literally just walked and got some drugs for him yeah. and was like, y'all so lazy. It's right around the corner. Yeah. And, and, then, they, and, then, they, and then they busted him. Like, really gold standard uselessness right there by the Baltimore Police Department. Yeah. You, you, you spend all this manpower, all this paperwork, over $10 and, like, a couple pills. Like, mm-hmm. what are we doing, right? Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Carchetti, witnessing all that is wrong in this department, decides that he needs a unfiltered voice that can help him understand these longstanding problems. And he reaches out to Daniels, who he, as we had noted, and we told you guys to look out for, I think, in a file this away for later, is to note how taken he was with Daniels because he, one, seemed to know um, what he was doing and also he could just tell by the way that he operated that he wasn't on the same, let's just um, juke the stats and do what we got to do. He wasn't about doing the minimum. And so he reaches out to him to get an unfiltered opinion about what's happening. And it leads to Daniels getting promoted to lieutenant. Again, one of the few times in The Wire where giving the truth, the unvarnished truth, and actually um, trying to operate with a little bit of integrity kind of pays off for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Bunk unravels the case uh, against Omar by proving that old face Andre, which I think is such a great nickname. Um, and it's so obvious, too. It's like, damn, he does have an old he face. He has an old face. It's so pinpoint. It's mm-hmm. so dead on. Uh, Buck proves that he old face Andre was lying about Omar killing uh, the taxpayer and also uh, pistol whipping him. So, And the main thing about this episode was Herc versus Marlo. And uh, first of all, if this, were, uh, if this were in Vegas, if this were on the board in Vegas, all the money would be on Marlo. Like, there's yeah. no way. Right. Herc is mismatched in every possible way. Shittiest investigator, I think, it, 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 possibly in all of Baltimore police. So his decision to tell Marlo has left, has um, led to a number of unintended consequences. He's got a complaint filed against him by the woman he wrongly assumed was Marlo's drug courier. Uh, he lies about how he got that info. And thus, we have the reemergence of Fuzzy Dunlop uh, from a few seasons ago and uh, the fake informant that he and Carver made up. And now he's desperate to find this camera that Milo has confiscated to figure out exactly who is investigating him, which he does at the uh, advice of Prop Joe. And Hurt tries to press Marlo repeatedly throughout this episode, uh, uh, him and his people, about his camera. And once again, Hurt exposes himself as a complete mental lightweight in this Back and forth. We went from Stringer versus McNulty to this. Right. This is what <laughs> right? major crimes, and this is the reality of what major crimes is now. Major crimes has become uh, the, it's gone from being the class of the investigative arm of the Baltimore Police Department to being worse than the worst 
you don't want Herc in control of anything. They have an impotent, apathetic commander and a completely, completely bumbling lead detective. Yes, uh, he is way over his head. Um, you know, he just, he has, he, it was never his strong suit to do the investigative critical thinking part. And it's funny because, uh, you know, to some degree, you could say this about him and Carcetti. It's that they both fall in that bucket of be careful what you wish for. You know, Hurt spent so much time when he was a part of major crimes, when Kima and Lester and McNulty were there trying to fight for his respect, saying, you know, they got tired of doing the dog shit work, doing all the laboring, um, doing all the things that they didn't think mattered, even though the unit was just pet playing to his strengths. Right. But now that he's got to sort of think his way through these problems and he sees just how difficult it is when you are the lead investigator, when you do have to critically think, and he's falling apart and he is making things worse for himself and others. Right. Especially the others. The collateral damage that Hurt creates with this whole camera fiasco is just... It's catastrophic. And it's, it, it's so catastrophic. And not only that, but he's not just up against Marlo. He doesn't even realize he's up against Joe, too. That's not going to happen. Like, that's not going... He's not going to be able... He couldn't be Marlo, but he certainly is not going to be Marlo with... Prop Joe playing Mickey to Marlo's Rocky is never going to happen. So he's just completely out of his league. I appreciate that Mickey to Rocky reference, by the way. Because um, then it just reminds me of how Adrian, uh, Rocky's wife, one of the worst movie wives of all time. Why? She was terrible. Why you say that? Dude, she never believed in this dude. I like every movie they had to spend a good... 15, 20 minutes of valuable time of Adrian not believing in Rocky. And I was tired of it. She I was, was tired of her doubting him. She was him. concerned. No, it was more than concerned. You can't win, Rock. She told him she that. She doesn't want him to get killed. Like, right, you're, you're in a very committed, happy relationship right now. What if one day your husband is jogging around the block, you come back in, you go, what are you doing, baby? He goes, you know, I'm training right now so I can go out and fight fucking, I don't know, Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder or something like that. Wouldn't you be like, uh, you can't win. It's suicide. And and at that point, bro, look at, go back and look at pictures from fucking 88, 87 of goddamn uh, Dolph Lundgren. There's no way. Like, go, I mean, he was clearly on steroids, but so was Sylvester Stallone. Right, but, big time. Right. <laughs> anyway, but I'm saying, so she was actually trying to look out for him. She was like, don't do it. You can't win. It's suicide. And then, you know. My man goes to Russia by himself. Like, it's just, it's always a thing with her, man. Like, she she just doesn't believe. You know, Rocky, she has seen Rocky go through some shit to get to where he is. And all she was. The only thing is that there's no reason not to believe at this point. There's nobody right. you can put up. The strength of Rocky's whiteness is enough to beat anyone. So there's no. How could she not see this? Yeah, he beat Apollo. He's like a super white dude. Yeah, like, beat Apollo. On. He beat Clubber Lang. I think he got into a fight with Hulk Hogan and beat him. Or maybe he didn't. I can't remember. No, I, no, I think Hulk Hogan, like, slammed him. Hulk Hogan slammed him. Yeah, so anyway. But nah, yes. it's, it's, a, it's a point, we should say. Yes. She's a terrible, terrible movie wife. <laughs> that, that was my point. Um, but yes, nevertheless, uh, we move on to our character deep dive. And we waited a while 
to get to this person just because we wanted their story to flesh out a little bit more. And we know this may not be the only time that we look into his character because he definitely goes in through, uh, through a metamorphosis. So we're going to focus on Michael because now we know more about his backstory. He's always come off as a very guarded kid. Um, certainly somebody who is in a position of having to be the man of the house, which he clearly is. Uh, his mom is an addict. He's taking care of his little brother and he's taking care of them both in such a way that he's the one that's controlling the finances right. of the house. He is literally the adult. I mean, he's got, you know, her um, her county uh, debit card. You know, he's he's the one on the food, making sure Bug is is in school dress fed does his homework with him so by all intents he is the parent of the house and in this uh episode bug's father comes home uh he's yeah he's been in prison for um he got a 12 year sentence but he obviously got out early and the level of stress that this cause causes michael um you know we're used to him being a cool kind of unaffected character but this is the presence of this man in his house has Michael, you see the the PTSD, you see the trauma, like there is something that is clearly has happened to why he does not want this, his man in his house. But beyond all that, you know, Michael's character is is probably in the top five and most important in The Wire for a lot of people. Michael was their favorite character. So what is it about um, Michael that, um, you know, really resonates and, and why is he such a strong character, man? It's interesting. It starts with mystery. It starts with entry. Of all of these kids, right, why is this one kid so different? Of all of these kids that are, that are seemingly figuring it out, seemingly childlike, all of those, we get very few moments of Michael, of Michael being a kid. Michael takes everything seriously. He takes uh, his little brother seriously. He takes his reputation seriously. He takes Owen niggas, as he says, couple episodes back, very seriously. It's all so high stakes for him. Everything for Michael is a huge decision. You know, down to somebody putting your hand on the shoulder. Michael, Cuddy puts his hand on Michael's shoulder. Michael moves it. Everything is a big deal. You know, he's not a very carefree kid. And that, that, that indicates something. That indicates that he has seen uh, the ugly side of things, and he can also he's also seen what happens when you are exploited, right? He's seen what weakness or the ability not to fight back, the ramifications of that. And he's not interested in that. He's not interested in owing anyone. He's not interested in being under anyone. He's not interested in relying on anybody else except for himself. You know, he knows that he's the only person that's going to be responsible for himself and for his younger brother. And in this episode, you start to kind of see why Michael feels that way. Michael feels that way because there was a monster in his home. There was somebody in his home that made him be guarded every step of the way, that made him put up a wall, not just against uh, this guy, but against everyone else. He's seen what can happen. And not in, so Randy's seen it, right? Naaman's seen it. Not that these other kids haven't seen it, but it hasn't always been directly pointed at them. It hasn't always been something that's happened directly to them. And you get strong indications in this episode and, you know, strong indications throughout the rest of the series that the relationship between Bug's dad, I don't even know if it's Michael's stepdad, I don't think anybody got married, but the relationship between Michael and Bug's dad was abusive and exploitive. And that something happened to Michael. 
and that his goal in life was to make sure that that never, ever happened to his younger brother. When the when Bug's dad comes home, he looks at Michael. Well, the first thing that happens is when he comes home, Michael's mom says people change. So you know right there there was something to change from, okay? Right. The, and, you, and whatever it was that changed, she knew about she it. She knew about it. She knew right. about it. And she was, not only did she know about it, she was willingly subjecting her son to it again. So think about that. Another reason why Michael might think that nobody, that he's the only person that can protect himself is because nobody's protected him, right? His mom didn't even protect him. And he's continuously questioning her about why she has failed to protect him. So, you know, you, you look at this character and you, you start to kind of figure out what about him, the reason why he was so mysterious, so strong, and why that was such a big deal to everyone else. When people see somebody that they don't feel like has to rely on anyone else, it inherently makes you want that person to be a part of your thing because it seems like you can rely on them. The easiest person to rely on is somebody who doesn't rely on anybody else. And so that's why everyone wanted a piece of Michael. Everyone saw Michael's strength. They saw his resolve. But what they didn't see was the monster that made it. And this in this episode, that's what we see. And it's different kinds of strength, too. It's a different kind of uh, strength from basically anyone um, that's on the show with, with absent of one person that he mostly gets compared to. But I'll save that comparison until later because I don't think it's fully matured yet. Right. It, Right. We haven't gotten to that point where you can like really see it. But um, it, Michael has a different kind of strength in the sense of that it's not a strength like Marlowe. It's not a strength where he seeks to exploit and abuse other people, because one of the things that I think that makes his character so compelling is that despite the fact there is a coldness to Michael, a coldness that was learned and not something that was uh, natural necessarily, but something that he had to learn in order to survive, is that despite that coldness, there's a sense of duty, honor, and justice that he has. And you could tell how, as you said, everything he takes super seriously. And I think loyalty is one of them. He is super loyal. He's very loyal. Um, and he uh, judges people based off their, their loyalty and to some degree their ability uh, to be able to weather certain things. Yeah. And even though him and Naaman are cool, there's a part of him that does not respect Naaman at all because he doesn't understand, one, why he's even on the street because he's just like, you got it better than anybody here. Right. I don't even understand why you're here. Uh, everybody else is in this position because they have to survive. He also doesn't respect the fact that he he feels as if uh, Naaman is a bully because the other person besides Bug that Michael looks out for the most is Daquan. Daquan. Yep, that is the other person because he knows, he senses the innocence, the naivety in him, I'm sure it reminds him of his little brother as well, because these are people who, despite living in very tough circumstances, they have been to some degree untouched by the world. Like there's still an innocence about them. They're still able to tap into that and be that. Um, Bug is still a little bit able to be a kid because Michael is protecting him. Daquan is still able to just be kind of a carefree middle-aged boy despite the fact that he's living in a house full of addicts because he has a Michael because he looks at the world with such wonderment and I think um you know Michael has a natural instinct to protect people who are most vulnerable right yeah 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 because he's so he, that, he's been he's been that before because he's, he's been, been that, that person right right 
Right. And so he he's because he has suffered his own kind of abuse. And I think um, uh, as we over the next course of the next two episodes, you all will be, get get to see what that is. Um, but because he has he understands what it's like to feel helpless. There is a natural tendency in him, despite his survivor instincts, to help other people. Right. And that's a very important characteristics for his characteristic for his character as it develops. But you also see how the coldness that he has in him has also been groomed. Uh, I, I go back to the incident of when the young lady got her face slashed. Pay attention to how Michael reacts. Number one, he doesn't. Right. Okay. He literally is just looking at this like I have seen so much more or I've seen a lot worse or today's frankly Thursday. This is what happens. Right. Right. And so his ability in that moment to just look at this as just this is a product of, it's of just being what, where go, I am. It's what goes on. And what it what it, it's what goes down. It gives you a very um, interesting insight to what his trauma actually um, may be. Yeah. And to be honest with you, that's a great point. And to be honest with you, also, when you look at that scene, he's just kind of like he's studying things. He's like kind of seeing almost as if he's waiting to see what happens next. Okay, so that happened. Now what happens? Um, and look, that's the way he's been forced to live his life. And and oftentimes with kids like this, they make decisions based upon, and we're going to see this, who actually ends up proving that they can be useful to them. Like normally in, when you see kids that, you know, they join gangs, they whatever, is who will protect me? Even if they're not looking for that. Even if they're not seeking a protector someone normally comes into their lives and says hey you know it's cool over here and whoever that person is for at least a time that person becomes someone that they develop a new loyalty to and we're kind of seeing that happen with michael right now but more than anything i think michael represents um sort of us more than any other character in the wire uh, who michael is isn't really we're seeing other people in the wire formed through tragedy. Michael is one of the ones that's formed through decision. Like, we're going to see characters that get put in all kinds of situations that they don't have any control over. We're going to see, uh, in terms of these kids, we're going to see Randy get put in situations where he's just kind of a, a slave, or not a slave, but a victim to things that he doesn't have any control over. Duquan as well. Everything about Michael are reflections of choices that he made. Yeah, he is a, a little bit more empowered than yeah. they are in a lot of ways because he's had to be, frankly, for survival. Sure. You know, it, it, I would call Michael, and this usually, this is a word that often has a negative connotation, but I would say he's very calculating. Okay. Right? Um, and and I'm again, I mean that in a in a good way, really. I don't mean it in a way that means he's inauthentic or fake. Um, but part of the reason why I think his particular peer group looks at him like a leader because he he is able he doesn't talk a lot compared to some of them yeah um but he observes so much and it's through his powers of observation that he's able to navigate so well and um you know like for example think about it it was Michael that let Cuddy know because you've been out here tricking with all these people's mamas, that's why they don't respect you. Right. And right? told him to his face. And told yeah. him to his face. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like, but but think about, you know, as a kid, 
you see certain things happening and you may like understand some of it. But the fact that he knew right away what it was, he was just like, not only, you know, had he peeped his behavior, which, you know, Cuddy wasn't necessarily trying to hide, but he was observant enough to make the connection and realize and understand for that matter. Like, no, these dudes don't respect you because of this. I mean, just like how um, earlier this season when, you know, uh, when they got into a fight with those other boys um, with the whole piss balloons and Naaman ran and he left, you know, he didn't um, he didn't protect somebody else in the crew. I forget who it was. It might have been Michael. I think he just let Michael just kind of get beat down. Yeah. I can't remember who it was either. I don't know if it was him, but but he let. but it might have been Daquan. It could have been him as well. It's like he he just let him get beat down. He had he had two choices, either run, save himself or, you know, jump in and intervene. And he chose to run and save himself. And Mike peeped that. And he called him out on it. So he's not only observing how people behave, he has no problem actually addressing it with him. Um, and something for um, also for people to pay attention to is that Michael has a severe lack of trust in adults. It's which adults right. that you have to notice. Yeah. Is that particular men, he has a severe lack of trust in men and he doesn't like being in certain situations with them. Right. He doesn't like to be in any situation where he is vulnerable with them. Where he right. When they show him kindness, they it show, freaks him out. Right. Because to be honest with you, that's probably how he was groomed. And Michael is determined not to be groomed again. So that's, prob- that's probably most likely how he was groomed. That's probably how it started. He sees that. He feels that. Doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Fascinating character. Fascinating character, Michael. Lee. Yeah. So when Cuddy, as as you noted, when Cuddy tried to show him um, some affection, that would be normal. I mean, it's totally normal what he was trying to do. The reaction from Michael is very alarming. Yeah. Because you know he uh, he has a thing about about uh, men showing him kindness and even showing him any kind of affection. He does not trust this so much to the point that when he went to that fight, you know, with Cuddy, and I have a feeling that. I'm not a feeling. I mean, I think they sort of alluded to it, sort of alluded to this. When Cuddy asked if he wanted to go to the fight, he was very skeptical on it. And the only reason why he said yes is because Justin also agreed Justin to go. said, he said, are you going? And right. he's like, yeah, all right, cool. We can all go. And as soon as Justin got out of the car, Michael did too, after the fights were over. Didn't want to be alone with him. So he, Yeah, he, he practically got out of it while it was still moving. While it was basically. still moving. Good. No, thank you. I'll walk from here. I'll take my chances with the dark street. Rather, the dark street where anything and everything can happen there in West Baltimore, I'll take my chances with that street rather than be in this van with you. Yeah, which which should tell you everything about the level of fear that he feels around being around adult men. Sure. Um, and and it's it's uh, it's one of those things in the the wire that's kind of a it's a powerful storyline, but um, you know, a a, a bit underrated because it's not one that. You know, when they talk about his character, they talk about some um, more of the bolder things he does, particularly in season five. But um, this, to me, was always what gave this character so much texture is that they were able to show people um, kind of what abuse, what it looks like, you know, in a in a very real way and how it impacts somebody's psyche literally forever. Um, so anyway, um, 
Yeah, anything else you want to add on Michael? Nah, I mean, I think we okay. we we, we're, we could almost do a deep dive on Michael every episode of this season, but yeah, I think but I it, have a feeling in season five we'll be doing him again. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's, yeah. it's just very important to know that this is the character that we see exactly how the streets. Michael wasn't born; he was created, and we kind of see the way that he was created and everything that he had to do uh, to be this person that everyone is so awed by their strength. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely important that people understand, connect his origin story to what he becomes. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, Visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Um, all right, well, moving on to best scenes. Uh, what were some of the, the best scenes or moments in this episode for you, Van? Okay. Um, I liked when Prez uh, puts the problem on the board. Is the opening scene, and Prez doesn't even realize that these kids are cunning. They might not be able to do the problem on on the board, but the problem that's in the Dockers, which is you, Prez, <laughs> right? They can do that problem. They've been figuring that problem out since they was kids. They definitely can figure that out. I uh, love that. Um, Hurt back in Major Crimes to return to Fuzzy Dunlop. That's what you. That's what you fucking get. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, and another scene where when Bunny is talking to the kids in the in the in I guess the, the group class, and he's talking to them about life on the street. You don't ever give anybody a break. Anybody? Nah, nah, because if you let them slide for a dollar, it's a sign that you weak. Today's dollar is tomorrow's too. Yeah, same with your crew. Your boy come up short, saying spillage or police or whatever. You let them be. And then he getting over on you. And then you what chump. So you gotta fuck him up. Too. It shows you that those kids are educated. 
they are educated. They are absolutely educated. They're not educated by the standard that Bunny and the guys over from Maryland, from the University of Maryland think get you far in society. But in their society, they're Rhodes Scholars. They're telling you everything. This is an eighth graders telling you about how you have to react to someone if they come up short on the corner. They have been getting an education for a very, very long time, and they are little geniuses in their ecosystem. And that's very important for people to remember. A lot of people listen to my voice right now. They say Jamel Hill is smart. They say Van Lathan is smart. And they say that because we've been educated in institutions that make us palatable to a specific world. I'm telling you that that education doesn't really equal smarts. What smarts are are the ability to synthesize information. And when I say information, I mean any information. Information wherever you are. And these kids are smart and educated in what it is that they're doing. And you ever even see in the room that there is a pecking order based upon who gets it even when what they're talking about, right? So right. it's just, just very important. Uh, there was not one big, huge standout scene to me this episode, but there are a couple more that I really liked. Obviously, Kirkelian Homicide, when Rawls and Burrell kind of do their thing. Yeah, their, 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 their breakup. Their breakup. <laughs> That's very sad. Sad. You know, we, talk, sad. About, yeah. we talk about the breakups the the breakup of Rawls and Burrell is a significant breakup. These it guys have been together for a long time, man. Their breakup was 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 a they pretty were, big deal. They were united in incompetence and bureaucracy. Sure. And <laughs> now they're breaking up because uh, Rawls has made a play. Mm-hmm. He's gotten Carcetti, um on his side. I mean, Rawls, I mean, I, I think this is exactly why I picked him as an episode winner. I think either the last one or the one before that, because he made the play to tell Carcetti, you know, about Royce, you know, losing support. Mm-hmm. And it paid off for him because now Carcetti is is looking at him as being a helpful asset. Yeah. Because he could have been where Burrell, you know, Burrell, like, misplayed his hand. And uh, he, I, I guess he mistakenly thought Rawls was going to have his back. And that did not happen. So uh, it was one of those things where their breakup, you love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> At least for me. If I have to put my favorite scene from this episode, if I had to pick my favorite scene, it would actually be Snoop and Chris interrogating the New York corner guys. Yes, because I agree. this is the only time that you see any comedy from them. It's a little lightheaded moment from two fucking killers. They're going around talking about Young Leak. Shout out to Young Leak. Think about what the, what the comedy of Chris and Snoop is surrounding. Who they got to kill. That's as funny as it gets in their world. You know, but I, li- <laughs> right. but I liked it. It was kind of lighthearted that they're trying to figure out which guys are from New York or whatever. Uh, although I, I will say is that Snoop is unintentionally funny, though. Yes. Like, she has much more. Like, Chris has literally no funny moments ever, right? This is probably their interplay as they try to figure out who's from New York and who's from Baltimore is the funniest he gets the entire time he's on the wire. Right. But Snoop will have, she will at least have moments. Like, with the with the nail gun. Like, she had a moment when she's like, you earned that bump like a motherfucker. You earned that like, bump like a motherfucker, yep. Right. So she she has a little bit more levity, um, even though, it, even if it's in a very serious way. But yeah, this is like, this is as Abbott as, and Costello as it gets with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very funny. So that's important to note. All right, so some of mine that I had uh, was Prop Joe. His, who knew he had voice-changing ability? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that is hilarious. I cannot believe yes. I missed that. 
Yeah, Sydney Handjerker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he calls around, uses the payphone, uh, calls around to um, figure out exactly where Herc, oh, you know, what department is he from? And mm-hmm. then he figures out he's in in, in major crimes. Uh, also, uh, Major Forrester's homegoing celebration at the bar where we see something we've never seen in the wild, which is McNulty drinking club soda in a bar. Yeah, McNulty not, not getting fucked up. Yes, we have sober, you know, we, as we said, I think when we first started this podcast, the first time we did McNulty as a deep dive, we have, there are several different iterations of McNulty. Mm-hmm. What you're seeing from McNulty in season four is the most responsible McNulty has ever been. Ever been. He can't, he, he is a, a new level of McNulty that we're seeing. Almost unrecognizable McNulty, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, in a way, some of it is kind of sad. I mean, there's a part of you that does miss the arrogant asshole, I'm always right, I'm drunker than shit, I run into to cars, McNulty, and in a, I'm endangering lives on the road. There's some part of you that that miss, uh, misses that. But it's, it is interesting to see Bunk kind of flounder without his favorite wingman, yeah. be it in picking up the ladies or in getting drunk. And when he says to McNulty as he's drinking the club soda, why don't you just suck a dick already and get over with? Yeah. <laughs> get, over, right. get it over with? I was like, those two, I tell you, they just have a certain magic. Um uh, I would also add in terms of favorite uh, scenes um, when Carcetti is meeting with a, what appears to be representatives from the wider Democratic Party. Uh, and, you know, they're officially welcoming him to the full machine of the Democrats that the very low expectations it is for him to remain in office. Right. Dropping crime rate by 10 percent, get some kind of downtown development with his name on it. And stay away from education. Yeah, don't because it's mess a losing the, issue. Don't mess with the schools. Don't try to help the schools and help the kids learn because you can't win and it's not a mess you made. Yikes. Yeah, I know. That, like everything that is wrong with politics was summed up in that whole meeting. Absolutely. And I was like, I was thinking to myself watching this, like, what does that say that just doing those three things, that that's all it t- takes for him to be considered governor material? Yeah. I was like, wow. That is a pretty, um, a pretty low blow. Uh, I'd also add as a as a as a good scene, uh, memorable scene is how our girl Delanda just micromanaging Naaman's drug career. Not let don't you don't vile up in the house. Take that somewhere. Wait, the fact that she said you ever see your daddy bring his work home with him like that? That's what you got a lieutenant for. Like, Naaman is an accountant. I'm right, like, right. what is she talking? Like, we made, like, that's what he did. Right. <laughs> you, like, you, don't, you don't file up in the house. You know, <laughs> take that out of hand. What is we, how is we going to bring his work done? We was a killer. What we going to bring right, a, right. a, a, like, a, a corpse? bring a body in? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm like, we wasn't a tax preparer. Like, what are we talking about mm-hmm. here? Uh, and the fact that she just chooses that moment to have, like, some kind of standards about, like, <laughs> like what he's doing. I'm like, what? Get out of here. So that was memorable. And also, like, on a smaller, funny scale, when Carcetti went to homicide, uh, Keepy got a little payback by making him make that pot of coffee. Yeah, um, yeah. Because he realized, you know, just a, a few seconds later that she was the detective that was the supposed rookie that was put on the alleged dead witness case, which turned out to just be somebody catching a stray bullet, right. which is the whole reason that he's even in office. A case um, that she put down, by the way. Yes, a case that she actually eventually solved. Yeah. And I think that's why... When he asked her about, like, who she was, she threw that jab in about, oh, 
you know, I'm the I would know what happens around here. I'm too inexperienced. Like she was definitely reminding him, like, I know who you are. And for that matter, I know how you uh, because of your political a- aspirations, how that impacted my professional opportunities. So um, I thought that was good. Uh, also, um, the thing is, for as much comedy as we saw from Snoop and 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 Chris, uh, Chris is just a terrifying person. Uh, him teaching the other goons how to be precise in their killing. It was just like... You get close enough, you can take a headshot. Why? This may be messed up. Word. A chest shot maybe won't do it for you. Love that okay. scene. By the way, I got that later as a father's away later, by the way. Ooh, nice. Um, but yes, him turning into an instructor. Right. Um, a, a very, very interesting. Um, although speaking of that comedy, when they threw the nail gun at the end of the episode into the body of water, I don't even know if that, I don't think that was a river. It looked like just a bunch of shitty water. Um, and, and, uh, Snoop says to Chris, like, you owe me 800 on that bitch. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, that nail gun is like, it came full circle. Like it was that, that is one of the best scenes in this season when she bought the nail gun and then for it to end up in the river or whatever that was. It seemed like a a bit sad, if you will. Um, So anyway, those are some of our favorite scenes and moments. Uh, Now let's talk about what age the best, Van. Uh, What do you got? So when racists saying that this ain't racist before they say some racist shit. Oh, totally. I have that whole scene. Like, there's so much about that that ages so well and not the best way, but it does age well. The fact that Rawls is blaming affirmative action... Oh, why the police department is terrible? It's right. like, what? Right. So, racist, so Rawls, like, excuse me, they, they hit you both with the, I gotta say some stuff, then they hit you after they say it with the no offense. So, when Rawls, when you, whenever someone says, I just gotta speak freely here about black, they're gonna say some ill, crazy, fucked up shit. And just having to be in that situation right there, that ages so well. And by the way, let's just put the rest something. It is insanely racist when you say, hey, having diversity means that we might not get the best person. When you say that, that means you're assuming that you cannot feel whatever position that we're talking about with someone who is both Black, both female, and excellent. That is fucked up. And every right. time that you guys, racist. every time you guys say that, every, it doesn't matter who it is. Well, you just want to hire the best person. So how do you know the best person is not black? Him saying that we have more black officers, meaning we have a higher, higher rate of incompetence, means that Rawls is deeply, deeply racist because, totally. because he thinks that blackness is equal to incompetence. Yeah, and I would, I would even take it a step further and say that I think that's his issue with Raw with uh, not Rawls. I think that's Rawls's issue with, with Burrell. Daniels. Oh, with Daniels. Oh, with Daniels. Yeah, okay. I, I think with Daniels too. I mean, I think with Burrell, but I think it's a little different because I think he does, in some respects, he does recognize that they're kind of cut from the same cloth in terms of chain of command, you know, all those kind of trivial things that matter in their line of work. But his reaction to, you know, uh, Daniels receiving the promotion, he's like, oh, he's got a bit of an independent streak or right. whatever. Like, it feels like there's some tension there that may in part be racial tension that I think Rawls is possibly a little bit jealous. Right. It feels, yeah, a little bit jealous. It feels like Daniels is some golden child that is, um, you know, being unjustly promoted 
at the rate in which he's being, you know, promoted and not really recognizing what he's doing to the uh, doing for the department. And by the way, I love how Rawls tries to lump Karketty in. And he's like, I'm no more of a racist than you are. Right. Karketty's looking like, who said I was racist? <laughs> That's the way those types of minds work. And it was just a very interesting, interesting scene. But that has aged perfectly. Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, anything else you had on your list? Not on age, not age the best. So you're going to judge me for this. And I'm going to tell you up front, I don't care if you judge me. Sure. I'm willing to stand on my square for what I'm about to say is something that aged incredibly well. Okay. And that would be rice-a-roni. Ooh. rice aged incredibly well. I don't speak, speak your truth. I don't have anything against rice-a-roni. Like, you, uh, you've had it recently? Um, I, I have, because I have not had a carb in a, in a truly long time, um, it's been maybe about over a month or so. Since you've since had I've a had carb? One. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. Wow. Like, I, yeah, it's, it's In a month, thing. no carbs? No carbs. I'm going on vacation soon, man. I How, gotta. How's it working out? How's it? Is it any results? Um. Yeah, I've had some results. So I'm. I'm. I'm trying keto, which, uh, there are good parts to keto. So I'm not here to shit on keto. Eat a lot of meat. You know what I mean? Yeah, you do. You eat a lot of meat, uh, but it's just I, I didn't. I have a different. There are certain carbs I think it's easy to stay away from in the sense like you. Everybody knows they're delicious. They're wonderful. But French fries, for example, like right. French fries is like okay. I, I love french fries. I, I can easily leave those on the table. But I miss rice so much. Mm. Like, rice is my shit, okay? And there are certain processed comfort foods that I like, you know? And rice aroni is one. But, you know, I don't just do just regular rice aroni. You know, I got to I gotta spruce it spruce up a it little up. bit. Spruce it right, up. Right, you know, add a little something. You know, like, throw some ground turkey up in there. I you know you. what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah. Thro throw some uh, some chicken breast up in there. You okay. know, do a little something. You know what I'm saying? San Francisco right? treat. San Francisco treat. But rice and roti, that shit is good. I'm sorry. It's good. Yeah, so what you're saying is she possibly could have sold the rice and to you. We're talking about I, Michael's mom I, I will, I selling, the rice or, selling the rice and He said, go out there. You got your rice and profits. That was very funny. Yes. Um, but she, but if you're walking by, she probably she could have she could have she could have sold that rice roni to you. If you what I will say is that you know why she knew to sell the rice rice roni because she knew it was a market. She for knew it. it was a market for it. Yeah, because it's still popular. Because a lot of us still think it's good. Right, it's what it is. Now realize I wouldn't take you know rice roni over like you know homemade rice or whatever the good shit or whatever. I'm not saying like rice roni over risotto. I'm not saying that. Okay, but I think there's. You know, certain processed foods. Like I know a lot of people, and I would consider I would consider myself one of them. I will fuck with some uh stovetop stuffing. I'll fuck with some. Never had it before. Really, man. I'm shocked at this. I never had stovetop stuffing before. Stovetop is good. Is it? Yes. Never had it. You know what I did have? What's the other one that I used to really like? My mom would make it. It's got the it's got macaroni in it with meat. It's uh Oh, Hamburger Helper. Hamburger Helper. Hamburger, hamburger Helper was the shit. I loved Hamburger Helper. Hamburger Helper Yo. I fucked with. Hamburger Helper was like a, like, I might make some hamburger and some turkey burger helper or something like that. Hamburger no, Helper. When, when I switched to turkey and made it with the Hamburger Helper, yo, that shit was, it was premium. Now, I, I, I won't lie is that I try to eat, I try to eat relatively healthy. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it by any stretch because I certainly have my, my breakdowns. But every time I walk past the hamburger helper when I'm at the grocery store. 
I have to stop myself from getting some. I really? really do. Really? Yeah, I haven't had any probably in a good 10 or 15 years. Easy, if not long. Probably longer than that. It's probably closer to 20 years. And then there's a part of me that if I actually picked up the hamburger helper and put it in my basket, I think people would think I was broke. And so I didn't have to get over that part, too. <laughs> it's like I feel a somewhat... I feel somewhat ashamed. I can do rice and roni. I have definitely gotten some rice and roni. I feel like that's still not, you know. Back in the day, hamburger, we didn't eat too much hamburger helping because my mom was a real big, big in the cooking. You cook a lot down in Louisiana. But when she did have it, it was a nice little tasty treat. I was saying, always man. happy to get some hamburger helper. She would do all kinds that, of stuff to that hamburger. That shit was flames. It was dope. It was dope, yeah, man. Hamburger helper. Shit. Hamburger Don't helper. Don't turn your back on it. Not, not um. Okay, so now let's move on to what aged the worst? So the first thing that aged the worst is the most obvious what aged the worst. I think I know where you're going. In the history of this series. Okay. It is by far the slam dunkiest what aged the worst ever. When they are in the class and they ask one of the kids who he wanted to be or name somebody that you look up to, he says... uh, the Ben Carson. <laughs> right. Well, if I have to, but then there's part of me also, I got to give that little kid credit, right? right? For knowing who Ben Carson was. Right. Because I don't think that was, that was not something that was like necessarily top of mind. Like a lot of people, when they thought about, because if you think about Black history and what we learned in school, at that age, you might have said Charles Drew. Right. Right? Right? Because that's the name. Well, I did, I, it, I did read Gifted Hands when I was like, in middle school. You read though. it? Yeah, because because um, uh, one of my teachers gave it to me because people don't understand. Before, I'm not going to get too political, but before Ben Carson decided to align himself with a certain group of politicians, right? Before he went all Trump, Ben Carson was, and I guess still is, an African-American hero. He was, at least by reputation, the country's leading pediatric neurosurgeon. And it was, he was a big fucking deal. And it, my, my teacher, Miss Watry, she decided that I, you know, I was telling her about, um, I was talking about, she was an earth science teacher and I was talking about Malcolm X and all of this stuff. She was like, well, you know, it's just not just one field where black people have been able to really make, do amazing things. It's not just the field of civil rights. She was like, you know, the guy, separated Siamese twins and he's a black man and he's the best doing it right now. And I read Gifted Hands. And 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 so, and there in Baltimore, I'm sure, because I think he was a doctor at Johns Hopkins, right? Was he? I think he I, was. You might be right about that. So yeah. I think, I think there they might have known, maybe, but when I when I read that, when I saw that now, I was I like, was like, oh damn. <laughs> It's like that did not the Ben Carson reference as as him being a testament. I mean, he's still, regardless of what you believe politically, I mean, given what he's accomplished in the medical field, um, he's still like a testament of definitely of of black excellence. Sure. But you know, he, he, the fact that he You can fuck it up. Yeah. You can fuck it up. And not only that, it's like considering what a a medical um, Marvel and a, a medical dynamo he was considered to be, it makes it that much weirder that he's in charge of housing. It's yeah. like, yeah. that's not even your gift. It's like, you, you are considered to be this brilliant doctor and you're in charge of not just housing, man, 
urban urban housing. housing. Urban housing. Mm-hmm. Make of that what you will. Yikes. Uh, yeah, that was my number one. Way, I, and I agree with you. That might be the mo- the number one what age the worst in this entire series. Yeah. It might be that. Yeah. It might be being Carson. Uh, anything else that you have on your list? Uh, yeah, Bug's dad was wearing one of those 50 cent G-unit tank tops. And I've pointed them out before because Bodie had one on earlier. Man, them age horrible. Why did we wear those? Like, why did people... I never wore one. But why did people have those 50 cent G-unit tank tops? But he had one on, so apparently he must have stopped by one of the stores on his way back from prison and picked up a 50 cent G-unit tank top. But uh, yeah, he had one on, aged terribly. Nobody even wears them anymore. Not even 50 wears those anymore. Damn. Yeah, that did, that that went that went by the way fast. Um, all right, what I had was... Uh, no Child Left Behind. That was a big thing Ooh. during the Bush administration uh, where a lot of educators really railed against this. So in, in you know, in this episode and throughout this season, you know, they're talking about this this test that they have to pass. A part of that is part of is is connected to that No Child Left Behind Act by uh, that was put in by the Bush administration, which essentially forced educators to stop focusing so much on learning and stop and start teaching kids how to pass state tests. Right. Like the state test for proficiency and those. Did you have to take a proficiency exam in, in uh, middle we school took, and high We school? took like the LEAP tests in middle school mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I don't, I, in, in, uh, in, in elementary school. I don't remember anything in middle school though. I went to, I went to a magnet school. Maybe they don't have them there, but I don't remember anything in middle school though. Just tested. There, there might've been. Yeah, we had a proficiency exam, a statewide one that was supposedly the scores determined, you know, were linked to funding and resources and all this other sort of stuff. So there was a tremendous amount of emphasis put on making sure that there was a certain threshold that Detroit public schools had to reach in order for it to get a um, satisfactory grade by the state. Um, I can't say if we ever reached that, but (laughs) I assume we might have, but I'm not totally sure about that. But just the the entire concept of No Child Left Behind, very evident and obvious in season four. Yeah. And also now you confirm or deny this for me, Van, because I've I've thought that this is what it looked like. Does old face Andre have a jerry curl? Because it kind of looks like he does. I went back and forth with this. Because I was I was gonna put that down, but then I thought, nah, maybe he just has, you know, a good grade. But like I went back and forth with that, whether or not it was a Jerry curl. It there was it wasn't hanging quite like a Jerry curl hangs, but maybe it was. I went back and forth with it. I couldn't make up my mind. Yeah, um, and maybe some of you guys who are listening to this can can confirm or deny, but I would definitely put that on the list if that was the case. Yo, if he had what a, age the worst. If he had a Jerry curl, it was aged poorly then. Oh my God! Yeah, yes, right. it, was, it was horrible. Right. Like it was, it's just like, all right, you know. I mean, maybe that's why he was wearing a cap all the time mm, to to hide the shame. Yeah, to hide the shame. But um, you know, I understand. I have a soft spot. I mean, I I once had a Jerry curl too. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow! And, and once had a Jerry curl, man. This how long did you keep it for? It's a time. I I felt like I had it a year too long. Right. Just one year too long. Whoa. So we're talking about. I got it in, let's see, um, I, I didn't have it going, I had it my seventh and eighth grade year, right. right? So this would have been late 80s, yeah, late 80s. Damn. I missed, Just a year too long. I missed the era about maybe like two, three years, never had one. Family full of Jerry Curls, though. <laughs> Some legendary Jerry Curls in the family. 
Yeah, that that shit. And it wasn't my idea. Like, I, I could live with it if I was the one who told my mother, like, yeah, I want this jerk girl. No, she insisted I have one because she thought it would make hair care responsibilities easier. Right, because it, 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 easy, it makes it easier to take care of it, right? Right, but it just made my life a living hell. It was mm. just, it was, it was, anybody who has undergone the process of getting a jerry curl, I I feel like you can put together a neutron bomb easier. That's what I feel like. Because <laughs> like the process, rods and conditioner and five different kinds of chemicals and a plastic cap, it's just too much. Right. It's just way too much. Then you got to keep the activator on there. I did, yeah, use, a, I did, like, I did use a jerry curl activator for my hair though. You I, must have had a kit though. Like a, in your hair, did you have any? No, no kit. Never had a kit. I never had none of that. Like my dad used to get the kit. My dad used to, <laughs> my dad, <laughs> oh, my dad, my dad one time, uh, Bandit the sidebar, my dad one time was going to Southern's homecoming. i never forget this because he was going to Southern's homecoming and with my Uncle Charles, where I rest his soul, and I came into the, I came into our room and they were sitting down there and they were putting the kit in my dad's hair. My dad already, he about to go to the Southern game and stuff like that. I think I'm about to go to the game too. And, and I looked at him, I'm like, yo, y'all about to go, y'all we about to go to the game. I'm like, okay, well, I'm about to go get dressed. And he looked at me and goes, nah, you're not coming to the game. I'm going to the game. You know? I'm going to the game by myself. Just thinking to myself, well, my Uncle Charles and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. This nigga going to the game by himself. And he putting a kit in his hair? Mm. Like what's like what's going on? Like what's what's really going on? Cause I'm not stupid. I'm not dumb. Uh-oh. Like are you trying to go to the game and get on some hoes? Like, what's like, what, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm like, what? You don't want to bring your son to the Southern? We've been to the Southern game all the time. You want to bring your son? You and Uncle Charles go to the Southern game? You might mess things up. You, you might mess up the game. You don't want to bring your son to, son to the Southern So you know what I did? I'll tell you what I did. I went to the other room. My mom was in there, right? She's no, you didn't. There. Man, oh, you did not <laughs> snitch. I know you didn't snitch. My mom was in there, right? My mom in there sitting down on the couch. I turn on the TV. Turn on the Sega Genesis, start playing the game. I'm like, uh, Dad, going to the game. And she's like, yeah, 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 he's going with your Uncle Charles. He's going to your Charles. I'm like, yeah, cool. I'm like, yeah, they told me I couldn't come. And she's like, they told you you couldn't come. I'm like, yeah, and his hair looked all soft. It don't look like it normally looked. His hair looked kind of soft and like whatever, whatever. So she goes, I'll never forget, she closes the, uh, the magazine. She goes, mm. so... They're going to a game together. They told you you couldn't come, and he's getting all pretty. Terry! Uh uh-uh. uh. Go get dressed, man. Go get dressed. But you know what? There was such a big deal, and they argued so hard. He looked at me so crazy. It was funny when they were arguing because he still had the shit, he was still mid kit. So he had like a uh like the the plastic shit on his shoulders, you know what I mean? And he had all the shit in his hair. Like you obviously Michael Malcolm X when the cops turned the water off and Malcolm was running, trying to get in. He had all that shit in his hair. It was like my dad. Yeah, he had the conk. Yeah. And my dad, you can only get so mad at somebody while you're having all of that shit in your head. You can't. It's not like this. You can't really be as angry with someone as you possibly can. Because you'll start leaking. Because you'll start leaking. And, and also, you're wiping the water off your neck and all of that stuff like that. you like, he's wiping the water off his neck. You're like, boy, did I tell you to come in here and talk to you, talk that shit to your mama? Get dressed. You coming to the game. I'm like, no, I don't want to come now. 
enjoy yourself. I was like, no, I don't want to come. Stay here. I'll play. I'll play goddamn Joe Montana football. Go like I say, go, go. I'll play Madden. I'll, I'll do. I'll do my own thing. I don't want to come. Go drip all over the yard on your own. When you come back, then it's gonna be cold. You made your bed lying. So I remember that. That was that, <laughs> that, 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 that was that was I was the vindictive van as a kid. It's the only time I ever did it because he did school me on the game. A little bit when he got back. Like, actually, Sunday, he took me for a ride. And he told me the way things go. And I, since then, I've, I've kept it real. But he had to tell me. But see, now I want to know, what did he tell you? That'll stay between. <laughs> see, now I was like, man, you can't leave that. You left a fastball dangling over the plate, dog. Like, nah, like... <laughs> that'll stay between the late men. But he told me he wasn't doing nothing. But he also uh-huh. tell he, he did say that. And he, you know. But like, uh, but but yeah. So we we had a conversation about kind of the the code of the Lathan men and stuff like right. that. So it's like stop being a snitch and stop blocking. Yeah, all all, all that wrapped into one. Uh, at, at the same time, take your son to the game. Take your son right. to the game. You don't have to worry about. That. You ain't got to worry about that. Take your take your right. son to take your son to the Southern game. I want to go to the Southern game. I want to go. You getting you putting a kit in your head to go to the Southern game? I'm like, yo, what is this? And plus, and I should have known something, because they up. They, I, they didn't let me sleep in. Ain't nobody come to get me. You know what I mean? Nobody come get me to take me to the game. I want to go to the game, too. We go to every other game. I'm telling you, someone's uh, whatever. And I'm going to call it. I'm going to call and ask them about that. So uh, ultimately, we what we have learned, ladies and gentlemen, is that Van's a hater. That's basically what I'm we learned. I'm not a hater. I'm not a hater. I did use to work for TMZ. I'm not a hater. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, take me to the game. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that is hilarious. Uh, great Van Length and sorry, Byer, as always. Um, all right, now let's talk about uh, things the audience should file away for later. What do you got? Uh, yes, so Chris training O-Dog to shoot people in the head. Yes. Uh, that is a major father's way for later. Chris basically telling them, basically that whole thing, telling them how do you creep up on somebody and kill them is a big deal. Uh, Buck's dad coming home obviously is a huge files away for later moment for me. Um, Naaman and Kennard. Naaman putting Kennard in charge of violin up and all of that stuff. Big time. Yeah, making him a away. lieutenant for $10? Making him a lieutenant like... for $10. Oof. And Carcetti mentioning stuff about maybe wanting to take a run at Annapolis and be the governor. People talking to him about that. So all of those things, big father's way for later moments for me. So I have um, the meeting between Daniels and Carcetti when Daniel says to him, how for real are you? Yes. Definitely want to file that away for later. Also, Old Face Andre's refusal to testify and back Marlo's game plan of, of how he got Omar. Yes. Uh, big file that away for later. Hurt's decision to go after little Kevin to gain leverage on Mar- on Marlo. Yes, huge. How did I miss that? Yeah. Yeah, that one's uh, pretty, pretty huge. So those are the ones I have. Um, now on to some trivia. So in, in what we both agree was a, a great comedic routine between two goons um, and, and pretty much sociopaths and, and serial killers, Chris and Snoop. Uh, as Chris is dropping, he's dropping a lot of Baltimore names. So I thought I'd give some people some context to who those names are. So one of the names that Chris drops is K-Swift. Um, uh, as somebody that, somebody from New York wouldn't know. Real name, Kia Edgerton, a very beloved Baltimore DJ um, who tragically died diving into the shallow end at a pool party, uh, suffering some fatal neck injuries. Oh, so man, very, that's terrible. Very, 
Yeah, really tragic end. But, um, you know, she was very widely known in Baltimore for her DJing style, like um, pretty much had the clubs on lock, like very extremely beloved. Also beloved, uh, Chris mentions the Big Fat Morning Show with Mark Clark. That was a huge staple in Baltimore. The show was unfortunately canceled in 2008. And you'll hear Snoop say, I don't know about that 92Q shit. 92Q was the name of the station that Mark Clark and the Big Fat Morning Show was on. And also, one more bit of, of trivia, final bit of trivia. So when Chris and Snoop are holding classes, or when Chris is educating the squad about how to kill folks, the model that he uses as the person he's pointing the gun at who has on, on the vest is Daryl Britt Gibson. And he is the son of my former boss, Kevin Merida, who runs The Undefeated as a vice president oh. at ESPN. And you might also recognize him as he played Rola in Power. So, oh, okay, yeah. Yes, yes, he played Rola in Power. And he was also in the Francis uh, McDormand movie, um, Three... Uh, three billboards for uh, um and and Ebbings. I yeah. saw that movie. Yeah, very good movie. Yes, and he was he's also a major depressing, character in that one. but good. Depressing but good. Right. Yes. Uh, some tremendous performances in that of of which he gives one. So shout out to Daryl Bray Gibson, whose mom was one of my favorite uh, columnists, probably my favorite columnist when I was in college. Uh, his mom is Donna Britt, who's a longtime Metro columnist for the Washington Post, and she was somebody I grew up and adored. Um, for many, many years, still am, am very cool with her and Kevin. So shout out to the to the Meredith slash the Brits. Um, all right, man, we've reached the moment of truth. Who won the episode? Well, I have Michael winning the episode. Michael kind of uh, in this episode was the one that kind of kept things on track. He was grounding everything. That's kind of my deal. Who, if you remove one person from this episode, one character, which character would affect the quality of this episode the most? I think that is clearly Michael Lee in this episode. So therefore, I say that he won. Yeah, that's a great pick. I mean, it's certainly the 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 powerfulness of his story pretty much is the engine for this episode. But the person I think who won is Prop Joe. Mm. Um, Prop Joe is proving himself to be indispensable to Marlo. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that relationship in itself is a big file this away for later. But um, he's showing that he has some some real reach. And, um, you know, the, if we think about what was the genesis of this is that his entire campaign to get Marlo into the co-op was to prove to Marlo that for as much as he knew and for as much territory as he had and as ruthless as he was and for as strong as the squad was, he still needs help. Right. He still needs influence and he doesn't know everything. And so Prop Joe to this point, has done a very good job of proving to be indispensable and proving to Marlo the benefits of partnership. Because I don't think that's something that Marlo naturally gravitates toward is partnership. And he's showing him, like, this is how you can benefit. Uh, He gave him the idea about stealing the camera so he can understand who was investigating him. Like, without Prop Joe's advice, Marlo doesn't figure out, you know, how to get the best of major crimes. So, to me... um, that was a, a really a good and winning strategy uh, for Prop Joe, again, with the qualifier for right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's going to do it for us, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening as we wrapped up episode eight. Corner Boys will be back uh, for episode nine as we continue to power through things. Episode nine called Know Your Place. 
big reason why that is called that. So uh, thank you for listening to us and for supporting the podcast. Keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us. We'll see y'all next time. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.